sexist, patriarchal, plutocratic. These are just a few terms that describe life in 18th and 19th century England. A time when women had few opportunities, when they were raised to become wives or spinsters, subservient to their husbands in every sense and considered little more than property. But even at a time when phrases like female author were an oxymoron, there were some women who refused to accept the status quo. Instead, they confronted a patriarchal system and proved that not only were they intellectual equals of men, but that even without the same opportunities, they could write masterpieces. Of those women, none were more significant than Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm Carter Roy. And this is Obituaries, a Spotify original from Parcast. Over the next 10 episodes, we're looking at unlikely pairs, giants in their respective fields, who left a deep and lasting impression on the world and each other. Some of these pairs considered themselves allies, some partners, and some bitter rivals. But in every case, their legacies are inextricably intertwined. We'll look at their lives side by side to see how their paths converged, how they impacted one another's fates, and ultimately, how they were remembered. In this episode, we'll explore the lives of Mary Wollstonecraft and her daughter, Mary Shelley, two women who overcame nearly insurmountable obstacles to publish some of the most seminal literary works of their era. Unfortunately, Wollstonecraft died just days after her daughter was born. But although they never knew each other, they undeniably influenced each other's legacies. We are going to look at Wollstonecraft and Shelley's careers side by side to see how their lives mirrored one another and how, despite the generational gap, they both found themselves fighting against the same cultural forces. We'll have all of that and more coming up. Stay with us. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. Marcel Proust wrote, There are perhaps no days of our childhood we live so fully as those we spent with a favorite book. Perhaps no quote better describes the turbulent childhoods of Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley. Wollstonecraft's early years were particularly miserable. While her father inherited a comfortable fortune, he was terrible with money. And by 1768, when Mary was 11, the family was falling into debt. In response, Wollstonecraft's father turned to the bottle and became increasingly violent and belligerent. On numerous occasions, Mary would sleep outside her mother's bedroom door in an attempt to stop the beatings that had become commonplace. Unsurprisingly, Wollstonecraft's mother grew depressed and withdrawn. In her mother's emotional absence, little Mary was forced to raise and look after her younger sisters, sacrificing her own childhood in the process. 
But there was a bright spot during Wollstonecraft's childhood, her friendships with Jane Arden and Fanny Blood. These girls were lucky enough to have parents who nurtured and encouraged them, and did the same for Wollstonecraft whenever she was over. Fanny Blood was perhaps the person who had the most profound impact on Wollstonecraft's life. Before meeting Blood, Wollstonecraft was resigned to a fate not unlike her mother's, becoming a wife and mother, or Elsa Spinster tasked with caring for her parents in their old age. Blood, however, instilled in Wollstonecraft that she was capable of so much more. Blood and Wollstonecraft were both intellectually gifted, and those gifts truly blossomed in each other's company. They spent hours laying about the Blood House and gardens, writing fiction and prose, reading and studying everything from philosophy to foreign languages. In Fanny Blood, Wollstonecraft could confide her family troubles, her distant mother and alcoholic father. And in Wollstonecraft, Blood found a like-minded young woman in whom she could confide the struggles they both faced because of their gender. Essentially, the two became mentors for one another. Nowhere did this mentorship yield more dramatic results than in their debates on the roles of women. That women could only be wives, mothers, and caretakers. That women were too sensitive and delicate to accomplish anything else. That they were prisoners of their irrational emotions, and that they were less intelligent and capable than men. To young Wollstonecraft and blood, these ideas felt wrong. Here they were, learning after all, and they were surely as smart as any boy. These doubts were fed by the debates they overheard at Jane Arden's house. Her father was a progressive philosopher who often held lectures in salons at his home, where guests openly disparaged the rigid ideals of the day. Instead, they embraced non-traditional relationships, atheism, and the pursuit of pleasure and intellectual enlightenment. Wollstonecraft and Blood, however, took these ideas a step further and applied them specifically to women. In their own spirited debates, they came to the conclusion that women were severely limited in the roles placed upon them by a patriarchal society. They agreed that non-traditional relationships and the pursuit of pleasure were noble goals, but what they believed most was that women were men's intellectual equals. They simply weren't given the same educational opportunities. Even when it came to relatively privileged girls like themselves. But at least they had it better than young women of limited means, for whom educational opportunities were virtually non-existent. Together, the friends vowed to devote their lives to the pursuit of women's education and equality. They just had to come up with a plan for how to do it. Curled in their favorite nooks and crannies around the blood estate, the pair formulated a plan to create a school and commune for women and girls, a place where women could live, work, and support one another financially, emotionally, and intellectually since few, if any, men were willing to do so. And in 1784, they put their plan into action. Unfortunately, just a year after their school opened its doors, blood died in childbirth. Wollstonecraft was there by her side when she passed. At that moment, she vowed to carry on her friend's legacy and prove her intellectual worth no matter how much difficulty she faced. Soon after Blood's death, their school was facing financial difficulties and was forced to close. 
But Wollstonecraft didn't let this weaken her resolve. Instead, she started writing her first published work, a pamphlet called Thoughts on the Education of Daughters. As she embarked on her literary career, Wollstonecraft would face even more obstacles and disappointments than either she or blood could have imagined. But she would leave behind a legacy that would have undoubtedly made her friend proud. She would also leave behind a little girl with her own crosses to bear. Let's now take a look at the early life of the other Mary, Wollstonecraft's daughter, Mary Shelley. The two women's childhoods were marked by both differences and striking similarities. Mary Shelley was born in 1797, 12 years after Fanny Blood's death. Although by this time, Wollstonecraft had survived an abusive childhood and a tumultuous career, she didn't survive childbirth. Wollstonecraft died just 10 days after her daughter was born. Perhaps the greatest tragedy of her life and her daughter's is that the two never got the chance to know each other. Still, despite this inauspicious beginning, Mary Shelley's childhood was, in many ways, a full one. Her father, William Godwin, was an author, intellectual, and publisher. Unlike Wollstonecraft's father, by all accounts, he was loving and supportive. And he honored Wollstonecraft's belief in the importance of educating women. He made sure his daughter was exposed to the greatest authors and intellectuals of the day. And from a young age, Mary Shelley was a voracious reader. But of all the books she inhaled during her childhood, the works she revisited again and again were those of her late mother. Shelley understood that her mother had been a literary giant. She would spend hours seated beneath Wollstonecraft's portrait, poring over her works on equality, empowerment, and education. Her devotion to her mother was so intense that she would compare each and every one of their physical features and keep a list of all the similarities. This somewhat obsessive interest was tied to an agonizing sense of guilt. Shelley felt responsible for her mother's death. But if the thought of her mother was the most difficult part of Shelley's childhood, it was also extremely motivating. In a sense, the ideal of Mary Wollstonecraft would play the same role for Shelley that Fanny Blood did in Wollstonecraft's early life. It encouraged young Shelley to pursue intellectual opportunities, not only to carry on her mother's legacy, but also to prove that her death wasn't in vain just as Mary Wollstonecraft had done in service of Fanny Blood. And although it was a tremendously heavy burden, from an even younger age than her mother, Mary Shelley also vowed to dedicate her life to writing and women's rights and education. The younger Mary was lucky enough to have the support of her intellectual father when it came to most of her ambitions, but if there was one distinct similarity between William Godwin and Wollstonecraft's father, it was the fact that both of them were constantly in debt. Godwin was always borrowing money to pay off his creditors and often forced to accept handouts from friends to sustain his business. One such friend was the poet Percy Shelley, who was the product of a wealthy British family. Shelley was a frequent guest at Godwin's literary salons, and like the others in attendance, was considered a political and intellectual radical. 
His financial largesse stemmed from his respect for Godwin, but he also had other, less noble motivations. In March 1814, 22-year-old Shelley met 16-year-old Mary, then Godwin, and was immediately smitten. Unfortunately, he was also married with a young daughter. Nonetheless, the two began a clandestine courtship, couched as an effort to extricate William Godwin from debt. In July of that year, the couple gave up all pretense of keeping the relationship a secret and eloped. They decided to embark on a journey throughout Europe along with Claire Claremont, Mary Shelley's half-sister. It was during this trek that her life would change immeasurably. Not only would she become pregnant twice, she would also be inspired to write what would become her most famous and enduring work, the gothic masterpiece, Frankenstein. Coming up, we'll explore both Mary's tumultuous romances, how these partnerships inspired their writing, and how despite their obvious gifts, they were still sidelined by men who claimed to view them as equals. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now back to the story. By their early 20s, Mary Wollstonecraft and her daughter, Mary Shelley, had both endured tumultuous childhoods and left home young to pursue writing and love, respectively. But when Shelley left her father's home, she had the physical and emotional support of her new husband, Percy Shelley, and her half-sister, Claire. When Wollstonecraft left to forge her destiny, she was on her own. In 1780, long before the birth of her children, Mary Wollstonecraft moved to central London to devote herself to writing full-time. And seemingly without help from anyone, she was able to land a position working for a progressive publisher named Joseph Johnson. In this capacity, Wollstonecraft taught herself German and French and began translating prominent foreign works into English. She also dabbled in literary criticism for one of her boss's periodicals. But her time and attention weren't limited to writing. Much as she had during her childhood, she spent time among like-minded intellectuals and scholars, including Henry Fuseli, with whom she started a tumultuous, passionate affair. Wollstonecraft was enamored with Fuseli's intellect and charm, but there was just one problem. He was married. Being the progressive woman she was, and having cultivated ideas about non-traditional relationships in her youth, Wollstonecraft proposed an idea that she felt was appropriate, albeit unconventional. They could all live together as a thruple. Fuseli's wife, however, refused and forced her husband and Wollstonecraft to end their relationship. For Wollstonecraft, it was a stinging rebuke. But rejection didn't follow Wollstonecraft everywhere she went. In fact, it was during this time that she published her first major work and became recognized in literary circles throughout Europe. 
The French Revolution had begun in 1789, just before Wollstonecraft struck out on her own in London, and with it came numerous treatises on human and civil rights. Perhaps the most famous of such texts was 1790's Reflections on the Revolution in France by British politician Edmund Burke. In Reflections, Burke essentially defended the patriarchal class system and argued that only certain people with upper-class pedigree were qualified to lead. Many progressive thinkers of the day condemned Burke's treatise, but it was Wollstonecraft who put her condemnation on paper. In fact, she spent an entire month composing her rebuttal, called A Vindication of the Rights of Men, in a letter to the Right Honorable Edmund Burke, occasioned by his reflections on the revolution in France. In Vindication, Wollstonecraft argued against Burke's notion of hereditary privilege and suggested that humans are capable of overcoming the conditions into which they're born, using her own situation as a primary example. Ironically, Wollstonecraft's publisher feared that no one would take this text on equality seriously if they knew it was written by a woman. He left the author's name off the first edition of her own work, but after it became an immediate sensation, a second printing followed. And this time, either Wollstonecraft demanded it or the publisher had a change of heart, but regardless, it featured Wollstonecraft's name a name that was now on the lips of nearly every significant literary and political figure in Europe. Often accompanied by expressions of admiration and praise. But while it may have appeared that her beliefs had been embraced and accepted, Wollstonecraft would soon discover that her male peers, while they applauded her talent and encouraged her career, would never really view her as their equal, however hard she struggled to achieve that goal. Just like her mother, Mary Shelley was determined to be considered equal in the eyes of her male peers. And also like her mother, Shelley's early career was wrapped up in a chaotic personal life. At age 17, she set off from home with her new husband, the poet Percy Shelley, and her half-sister Claire. The trio traveled through France for three months, which had just been ravaged by the final Napoleonic War. Despite the rampant death and destruction they witnessed together, romance continued to envelop the happy couple. And back in England, Shelley found herself pregnant. By this point, Percy had become estranged from his wealthy family thanks to his progressive philosophies and lifestyle, and the trio was forced to shack up in a series of increasingly shabby boarding houses. But despite their precarious financial circumstances and Mary's pregnancy, both Shelleys remained diligently devoted to their writing and did their best to keep stimulating intellectual company. Unfortunately, in February 1815, Mary Shelley gave birth to a daughter who arrived two months premature and sadly did not survive. After her daughter's death, Shelley began to experience the same symptoms of depression as her mother and grandfather. And although she got pregnant again almost immediately, this time delivering a healthy son, the emotional scars from her daughter's loss would never really heal. However, what had to that point been the lowest moment of Shelley's life was soon followed by perhaps her most triumphant. In May of 1816, the Shelleys and Claire all traveled to Geneva to spend the summer with Percy's friend and fellow writer, Lord Byron. 
Not coincidentally, Lord Byron, who was known for his swinging ways, began an affair with Claire, one that resulted in yet another pregnancy. Although Byron made it clear he had no intention of being seriously involved with Claire or their potential child, they all settled in for what became a memorable summer together. It was also an unusually wet summer, one that found them stuck indoors for days on end, with Percy and Byron knocking back liquor. And during one of these stretches, Lord Byron made a proposition which would alter the course of history. He suggested that everyone compose a ghost story. No one besides Mary Shelley took the directive seriously, since Byron was drunk all the time and constantly blurted out whatever popped into his head. But Shelley saw her chance. She was determined to prove that she was an intellectual equal to any man, including her husband and host. And for several days, she agonized over the flippant assignment. Until one night, half asleep, she came up with the idea for Frankenstein. What began as a short story soon morphed into a full-length novel, and Shelley devoted her every waking hour to its completion. Less than a year later, Frankenstein was completed, and Shelley, confident that she'd written something new and well-crafted, began the hunt for a publisher. Nearly every publisher responded positively to the material, but none of them picked up the book. They didn't believe a novel written by a woman would ever sell. Finally, a small house in London agreed to publish 500 copies of the text. Included in the first edition was a preface written by Percy and a dedication to Mary Shelley's father. But in a twist similar to the one faced by her mother, the manuscript was published anonymously. Thanks to the preface and the gendered prejudice that made people assume Percy was the only real writer in the family, nearly everyone believed the book was written by Mr. Shelley. It wouldn't be until the second edition, published five years later, that Mary Shelley would be appropriately credited as the author. By this time, the first printing had long since sold out, and the text had even been adapted into a successful stage version. But the indignity of having their names left off the first printings of their respective masterpieces wasn't the only injustice Mary Shelley and her mother would suffer. In fact, during what should have been the zeniths of their literary careers, Shelley and Wollstonecraft came to be defined not by what they wrote, but by the men they dated. Let's start with Wollstonecraft. After her first taste of literary success in December 1792, Wollstonecraft left England for France to get an up-close look at the French Revolution, about which she had written so passionately. It was there that she met American adventurer Gilbert Imlay. Like Wollstonecraft, Imlay was socially and politically progressive. Putting their beliefs into action, they began a sexual relationship despite not being married, at the time, perhaps the greatest taboo for a respectable British woman. Wollstonecraft, over the course of this relationship, fell madly in love. Unfortunately, to Imlay, their union was nothing more than a fling, a fling resulting in a pregnancy that led to the birth of Wollstonecraft's first child, Fanny Imlay, named after her old friend, Fanny Blood. 
Wollstonecraft's disappointments didn't end there. She soon discovered that the French were only paying lip service to the notion of equality. The revolutionaries who overthrew the French monarchy had no intention of granting equal rights to women. Instead, they were pursuing a form of government and society that honored the rights of men, while still more or less ignoring women or treating them as second-class citizens. For Wollstonecraft, this was crushing, and it was followed by an even more shattering blow. In 1794, shortly after Fanny's birth, Imlay left Wollstonecraft in Paris. He no longer wanted anything to do with their daughter or Wollstonecraft, who he deemed too domestic and controlling. Devastated by Imlay's response, Mary attempted suicide by overdosing on a liquid opiate called laudanum. Luckily, she was unsuccessful and ironically rescued by Imlay himself. Perhaps that's what motivated her to try winning him back a second time. But when that failed, she once again attempted suicide. This time by jumping into the River Thames during a rainstorm. Once again, she was rescued, but this time by a stranger. Imlay's rejection would continue to haunt Mary for the rest of her life, and the troubled relationship and subsequent suicide attempts would undoubtedly have a profound effect upon her daughter. Let's turn back to Mary Shelley. Although her relationship with her husband Percy was less dramatic, it was no less depressing. After the publication of Frankenstein, she, Percy, and Claire continued traveling, but this time to avoid Percy's creditors. In 1818, with two children in tow and another on the way, the family moved to Italy, where they wrote, entertained, and dodged creditors. Mary became pregnant yet again in 1819, this time giving birth to a son. Sadly, two of the Shelley's now three children died within one year of arriving in Italy. But there were bright spots during this period, too. It was incredibly productive for Mary, who completed her controversial feminist novella, Matilda. It was incredibly productive for Percy, as well. He wrote two of his most famous works, Prometheus Unbound and The Philosophical View of Reform. Unfortunately, he had precious little time to enjoy the accolades. In 1822, while returning home from Livorno, Percy died in a boating accident at only 29 years of age. Because his life was cut short, he became one of the great what-ifs of English literature. And in the process, his tragic death overshadowed the life and career of Mary Shelley, who was now forced to care for their son on her own. Even after Frankenstein was finally published under her name, Many readers still refused to believe a woman could have written it herself. They continued to attribute the book to Percy Shelley in an attempt to burnish his legacy at the expense of his wife's, no matter how many more works she wrote and published under her name. Coming up, what should have been Mary Wollstonecraft's golden years and what it finally took for both Marys to earn the recognition they deserved. Now back to the story. Of all the similarities between Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley, this is perhaps the most tragic. Both were often overshadowed by the men they married. 
After returning to London with her daughter Fanny, Wollstonecraft met the philosopher William Godwin at the home of their mutual publisher. The two developed a friendship and admiration that slowly deepened into love. By all accounts, this was the most stable and happy period of Wollstonecraft's life. She and Godwin eventually married, and she became pregnant with her second child. But on September 10, 1797, just 10 days after the birth of their daughter Mary, Wollstonecraft died from puerperal septicemia, a common blood infection that can occur during or following delivery. She left behind an infant, her three-year-old daughter Fanny, her new husband, and her literary work. Overcome with grief, William Godwin devoted himself entirely to completing a tribute to his wife entitled Memoirs of the Author of a Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Unfortunately, what was meant as an homage to his wife's brilliance and indomitable spirit ended up tarnishing Wollstonecraft's legacy beyond all recognition. In the biography, Godwin revealed, from his perspective, nearly every detail about Wollstonecraft's life, from her difficult childhood to her affairs to her suicide attempts. And while he naturally addressed her literary gifts and the happy time they spent together, the scandalous details received considerably more attention. Instead of being immortalized as an author whose gifts extended across all genres, Mary Wollstonecraft became a punchline. Ironically, the only man who viewed her as his true equal and tried to make that known to the world ended up completely undermining her legacy. And instead of transcending the limitations placed on her sex, she became a figurehead for the erroneous notion that women were mercurial, volatile, irrational, and unfit to be considered the equals of men. But if there was one person who was singularly inspired by Wollstonecraft's legacy, it was her daughter, who never gave up arguing that women deserved equality and respect, even as her turbulent youth simmered down into quieter late years. After the death of her husband, Mary Shelley moved back to England in 1823 to write and care for her son. During this period, she wrote and edited several seminal works, including a collection of Percy's poetry and the novels Faulkner and Lodore. In 1844, she inherited what would have been Percy's estate, and for the rest of her life lived in relative wealth and comfort. Not only that, she was able to see her son mature into adulthood, and even lived with him and his wife as her health declined in the last decade of her life. She passed away in 1851 from what was likely a brain tumor. In death, she was finally reunited with her mother, buried directly beside her in a small church graveyard. But in the years following her death, Mary Shelley's own legacy fared only somewhat better than her mother's. Throughout her life, she was branded by the indignity of her mother's scandalous behavior, of all her literary contributions, only Frankenstein seemed to leave any lasting impact, and even that was tarnished by the false theory that she wasn't the actual author. For over a hundred years, it appeared that both Marys would be forgotten. But that began to change with the rise of the feminist movement in the United States and Western Europe in the early 1970s. 
After the success of the civil rights and anti-war movements, women took to the streets demanding one simple thing, equal treatment. Even as late as the 1970s, many people believed that women were somehow genetically inferior to men and that the wildly disparate gender roles imposed by the patriarchy that had been in place for centuries were somehow correct. But as more women and like-minded men began challenging those assumptions, it became clear to all but the most jaded, chauvinist bigots, social gender disparities stemmed not from any sort of genetic difference, but rather from differences of opportunity. When women were given the same opportunities as men, especially educational opportunities, they would be just as successful. It was during this period that women began entering male-dominated fields like politics, literature, and business, and proving that very notion, a notion that had been championed by Wollstonecraft 200 years earlier. In fact, Wollstonecraft's treatise on the rights of women became one of the seminal texts of the modern feminist movement, as did Mary Shelley's Frankenstein which came to be viewed partially as a critique of male-dominated fields like science and literature, and the patriarchy in general. Both women's other writings also began to receive the attention and acclaim they had long deserved. As the literary canon began to expand beyond the traditional male heavyweights, it wasn't only contemporary women who got recognition, but also their literary predecessors. Due in large part to trailblazers like Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley, the prevailing attitudes regarding women, equality of the sexes, relationships, gender norms, and mental health are becoming more and more enlightened. And although we still have a long way to go, both Marys would undoubtedly take comfort not only in the fact that their work is being recognized, but in the unheralded levels of social and political activism that they inspired. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Obituaries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode on the linked legacies of two groundbreaking iconoclasts. Obituaries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Obituaries was written by Tony Goodman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. <laughs>